Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville. 103.7 streaming online, wpvmfm.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, walterparks.com, if you're interested in listening to more of Walter's music. If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so through my website, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You'll find the contact button at the top of the page. I would love to hear from you. Where are you? What's going on in your life? What's your news? If you're interested in writing, I wanted to let you know that I'm hosting an Imaginative Storm Writing Circle Prompt of the Week event with my business partner, Allegra Houston, every Saturday morning. 9 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Mountain, 11 a.m. Central, and noon Eastern Time. If you're interested, you can reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I'll send you the Zoom link. I look forward to hearing from you and hope to see you there. Now, on with the show. Today, my guest is Danny Solis. Danny is a poet, a good friend of mine whom I've known for many, many years, Danny and I worked together in Poetry Alive back in the days when we were performing poetry for school students all over the country. Plus, Danny Solis is a slam poetry champion, and he was on the 1995 Poetry Slam team from Asheville when Asheville won the National Poetry Slam Championships in 1995. And I was on the 1994 Poetry Slam team with Danny when we competed in Asheville. We didn't win that year. Always a regret for me. And yet Danny went on next year to to win the National Poetry Slam with his other team members from Asheville. So Danny is a big contributor still to the spoken word movement. We've all stayed in the game. And Danny Solis has certainly kept up his end of the bargain. And it's a real pleasure to have Danny back again. He was a guest on this show about a year or so ago, or maybe two years. I don't remember. So he's back with us now. Danny Solis, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you, Jim Nave, uh, for this very gracious and generous invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you, Danny. And I, I love it that you call me Jim Nave. Most of my old friends know me as Jim Nave, even though I go by James Nave now. So when somebody says Jim Nave, it defaults me back to all of the previous years that I've experienced with friends like you. So beginning this interview, we talked last time you were in Asheville and you and I did an interview at Riverside Cemetery, sitting in front of the statue of an angel overlooking the French Broad River and Interstate 26, which was running north to Johnson City, Tennessee. It was raining a bit and you and I sat there and you know, we talked about life. So that's been two or three years ago. In the passing of time, I know you're still involved with all your poetic work. And so I would love for you just to start by telling us what you're doing now and how things are going and, and what's up. And let's just take it from there. Well, thanks, Navi. And I, I have to say, I loved that interview. And I, I got some nice compliments on it from poets that listened to it. So that was a pleasure. And I, I remember that. That was a good day. The kind of work that I've been doing, working with kids at a program called Keystone in Minneapolis and doing all that virtually 
doing uh, X amount of classes a week and listening to young people get excited about poetry, which never gets old, never, ever, ever gets old. The other crazy thing I've been doing besides that kind of work is I've been working on a novel like for the past year and some odd months in earnest. I'm closing in on 90,000 words. I recently uh, hired somebody to draw one of the characters, illustrate the main character, uh, whose name is Paloma Flores. A lot of brown people and women in this story. But anyway, I got very excited about the idea that I would see one of my characters come to life visually and that somebody else would add their imagination to it. I haven't seen the first sketch yet because I just sent her the information yesterday, the mighty Alana Ray Garcia, who was a high school student of mine back in the day, but I've stayed in touch with her and her wife on Facebook. Yesterday, before I sent stuff off, we send things off, whatever it is, a poem, a short story, an article, and we get nervous, right? And then you hit that send button, whatever it is, a grant, and it's gone, and you can't get it back, and it's there. So she's looking at it. That's one of the things. I mean, and then I'm a dad every day, and just the best job ever, the most fun and biggest learning experience and the most joy that I've ever experienced. So grateful for that. Just out here hanging on, Navi. Living life. <laughs> so your character, Pal Paloma, how did did this character emerge? A woman or a man? Paloma is a woman. Traditionally, Paloma is a woman's name in the Spanish idiom, but Paloma could be a man. Why not? You know, that's a good question. I like that. She emerged because I'm a big fan of, of the Western, not only Western movies and those types of things, but also uh, literature, novels. You know, like I love Lonesome Dove. I think those characters are immortal. I love Cormac McCarthy's writing, Blood Meridian and the, the Border Trilogy and all that stuff. First of all, there are almost no Mexicans or Black people in any of this stuff. I mean, you got Dietz and Lonesome Dove. I mean, he's a great character, you know, but there are no strong Mexican characters in that whole book, that thousand some odd pages. So I kept waiting. When is somebody going to write characters that look like me? And I figured I'd I can't wait. You can't really wait on that. I got to make my own stuff. So that's where the idea of the novel came from. The other thing I was going to mention that I love is vampire stories, books, novels, movies. And Paloma Flores is an 18-year-old young woman in the 1880s in the Southwest who is a vampire hunter, demon slayer, and has a band of uh, vampire hunters that she runs with. It's very diverse, and she's a badass, you know? And not in the ways like Clara in Lonesome Dove, who's long-suffering and stays on her little ranch and, you know, loses babies and goes through all this hardship, but she's not out hunting blue duck. She's not out kicking ass and taking names like Gus or Woodrow Call. She is playing the traditional woman's role. I wanted to break that open, right? Because people write all these fantasy stories and we have to suspend disbelief and say, oh, I believe that a man can fly or Batman can beat up everyone or whatever it is that fantasy writers are asking us to believe. 
And so I thought, why not just have a woman that kicks ass? You know, young woman, here she is. I, I would guess if I had to describe the vibe or the feel of the story, it's kind of like a lonesome dove meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Tombstone meets Bram Stoker's Dracula. There's a lot going on. Anyway, I'm I'm excited about it. I, I like the characters. I love Paloma. And in terms of seeing women be strong, I grew up with a bunch of strong women, like my mom and my grandmas and my sisters and my aunties and everybody, wonderfully strong, confident women. And so it's a natural thing for me to think of women in that regard. Obviously, I'm a big fan of, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but there's also some of the princess from Hidden Fortress, Hidden Fortress, the great Akira Kurosawa movie and the inspiration for Star Wars. And the princess in that movie was partially the inspiration for Princess Leia in the Star Wars saga. The anger that the princess in Hidden Fortress shows at times, like just the force of her will. Some of that is in there in Paloma's uh, gestalt, if you will, in the melange of, of influences. And, and I think I got to give some love and shout out to my mom. You know, my mom had a, a wonderful, terrible temper. When something mattered to her, you could not bend her, much less break her. There's some of Georgia, that was my mom's name, or Goya, as everybody called her. There's some Goya in Paloma too. So there are a lot of influences sifting through there. Yeah, I wanted to create a character like that. I wanted somebody brown, somebody who was Mexicana, Chicana, Mexica of that lineage and culture, but who was also a super badass. And if you study actual history, a lot of the things we associate with American cowboys, they actually got from Mexican cowboys. Even the word buckaroo comes from the word vaquero, vaquero, buckaroo, vaquero. I was thinking as you were talking about Paloma and her role as a, a mystical character in the Southwest. And then you mentioned Blood Meridian by Comac McCarthy. And in Blood Meridian, which some people will say is considered the greatest piece of literature ever written in American letters, yeah. I think it may well do, it may well stand that test. The main character is, I think he's the judge. Yep. And the judge in Blood Meridian leads this gang of scalp hunters, and they're riding along the borderlands between uh, what is now Mexico and America, although back in the day it was Mexico, and they're hunting scalps, and they get paid a certain amount of money for scalping. Native people, I don't know if they really cared who they scalped, but they certainly did go at it, and it was a very violent violent time and it's certainly a violent book blood meridian and yep. it's and, and yet the judge i think if i recall he was pale skinned and was almost impossible to kill and he would appear in odd places like in the middle of the desert he would be sitting on a rock at a distance for hours and he could quote all the great literature. It's almost as if he had had an education that came through many centuries, a bit like a vampire who could never die because in a sense, the judge was a vampire because they were taking, 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 taking. 
And then the protagonist, the, the lad that joins the group, does become transformed through violence into something else that's a little softer in the end. So there's a lot of precedent for having a character like Paloma wandering around the Southwest doing deeds to push back on the evil that also existed in that time, which was after the Civil War. And all of the characters and soldiers and people left over from that conflict went west without rules. Mm-hmm. And there they were dealing with with whatever confronted them day and night. I love that you described the judge as a vampire and having read Blood Meridian at least twice. I won't lie and say I've read it a dozen times. It's it's hard to get through at times. I mean that writing is so dense and beautiful. I never thought of him in that in that vein, but you're completely right. I almost got a chill when you were describing him sitting on a rock. I will tell you that there is a little allusion, A-L-L, not I-L-L, to Blood Meridian in the manuscript. I hesitate to call it a book, right? Because it's not a book until it's like bound and published, but... Well, I love it. I love calling it a manuscript because you're acknowledging the effort one must put forth to eventually end up with a book on the desk. And, and the manuscript is an ever-changing, fluid thing, not unlike one riding around the Southwest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will tell you, man, uh, Paloma and her friends encounter some scalp hunters. And there's even a, a young boy in the group that they take with them, not to give too much away. But, I mean, obviously, it's Paloma's book. So the judge is not really there with them with these scalp hunters, because it might be a different story. Uh, that's the judge's story, this Paloma story. But yeah, there, there's definitely an allusion to Blood Meridian. A friend, uh, Whammo, who reads sometimes some of my daily stuff that I write, at one point is a big fan of Cormac McCarthy and Blood Meridian, at one point said, these passages, you know, this thousand words today kind of reminded me of Cormac McCarthy. And I was like, no, don't do that. Don't ever, ever compare me to, to him. Just don't do it. The weight is too great to lift, to bear. The working title for the, the manuscript is Flowers of the Desert. And I would be happy if Flowers of the Desert were kind of a wonderful, crunchy, cheesy, pop culture confection. If it were just like the dime novels of the Old West, and people picked it up and had a good time and read it, enjoyed it. This will go in the Hall of Great Letters next. No, none of that. None of that. I just want to create something fun. And I, I want to add some characters to our imagination that don't necessarily look like the characters that we've been used to seeing in those roles. Flowers of the desert bloom at night often. And that's the darker time when you're less able to see things. So many of the flowering opportunities that happen in the desert happen when one cannot see them. And other animals that wander the night can see them. So I think that's also interesting, too, in respect to the kind of characters you're bringing to bear. These are the characters who haven't been seen as much in literature. Right, or if at all. If at all. And the other thing, Paloma Flores, Flores means flowers. And so flowers of the desert 
I like the idea of the night blooming flowers in the desert. What pollinates them? It's bats and it's moths and it's tiny owls and those types of things that, that go from, from flower to flower and, and pollinate and cross pollinate and do all that. And, you know, the lots, of, lots of bats in the desert. People don't necessarily think of the desert as being a place with bats, but they're there, man. They're just a huge part of the ecosystem in bats, vampires, everything. Of course, the desert has all of the snakes and, as you said, the small owls, large owls, probably some cats out there wandering around as well, plus the insects as well as the other reptiles. I imagine the desert really becomes a lively place in the night. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's when a lot of a lot of the creatures out there start work, you know, when the sun goes down. And that's that's their shift, man, from, from dusk till dawn. So true, so true. The desert animals come out at night and go to work. Like you, for a year, you've been coming out and going to work on this novel. During this process, how has that work changed you? Are you different now than you were before? Yes and no. I mean, I, I have a much greater appreciation for people who hammer out books because it's so much work and it's a different kind of work than poetry, which is its own, as you know, lovely and worthy and necessary work. Trying to work on a novel, on a manuscript is so different. And, you know, I've had to do a lot of research because I don't want to just be talking through my hat, as it were, if I mention something, for instance, there is a Tuareg character that appears in the novel and there are camels, right? And there were camels in the Southwest. There was a general in the US cavalry that thought the only way that the United States Army could fight the indigenous peoples in the desert was to have camels that wouldn't need as much water as horses. So they actually brought a couple of shiploads of camels and trainers from Northern Africa over to the Southwest. And it was a failed experiment, but the character in my story is a guy who just got turned loose. They gave him a couple of, of camels and a month's pay and they were like, see ya, we can't, we can't use you anymore. He was at home in the desert and so he encounters some other characters in the manuscripts. You know, going down those kinds of rabbit holes to do that kind of research is one of the things that would never happen if I weren't working on this. Learning to respect all the work and the research that may go into like, a, say, a 300-word passage in a book, and you don't see it, right, if the book is good, if the, if the writer's good, it seems effortless. They describe something and it's well-constructed and it seems believable and it doesn't stand out. In other words, seamless and you keep going. But now I've got a much different kind of appreciation. Sometimes when I'm reading something, I want to pull the curtain back and I wonder to myself, wow, I wonder where they got this detail or how they dug up this idea or whatever it is. I like that you mentioned how the characters kind of created themselves. To me, character creation is so fascinating, right? Like I got to sit at the feet of Toni Morrison in Cambridge, Massachusetts one time. She was doing a, a series of workshops at MIT 
and I snuck in. I literally snuck in. She did a lecture in a big hall, and there was a Q&A, and I got to ask a question. She answered it, and when she saw me walk into the room, she was like, oh, there's my inquisitive friend. And I was like, Toni Morrison just said something to me. And so anyway, I got to listen to her talk about the way that her characters arrived to her. That was like gold, man. That is that is currency, baby. Just listening to her. And again, not to ever have an inkling of putting myself anywhere near that mighty woman, but to just say, I try to learn from wherever I can. And those things come back. And talking about characters, you know, even, even in poetry, we create characters at times. How that process takes place and the myriad ways that it takes place it, to me, it's it's fascinating. You know, even even if somebody tells me something that I personally will never be able to use, just to know that this is one of the ways people do stuff is is wonderful to me. Well, it's interesting also to think about this idea of research in the days of Google, which is where we are now. There's so much information online. And for people out there thinking, I'd like to do some of this work, I encourage you to reach into the research opportunities. So if you're writing about an owl in Western North Carolina, it's very easy in five or 10 minutes to find out how many owls you have in Western North Carolina, or if you have owls in the Southwest. And what are the differences between the owls in the Southwest and the owls in Western North Carolina? You can go on YouTube and watch videos of these owls flying at night. So there's much to be, much to be had. And, and one of the things I wanted to comment on, we do have the opportunity as creative people, as writers, people who decide to do creative work, we have the opportunity to gather around a lot of great people. Toni Morrison being one, and you and I have been in the poetry world a long, long time, and we have crossed paths with many people, many of whom have won Pulitzer Prizes and all kinds of awards, and have, they've mm -hmm. gained a lot of, of national recognition. And yet, no matter how high one climbs in the hierarchy of recognition, in a sense, we're still all sitting in that same circle. And you never know, Danny, you never know, I never know, and anybody out there listening, you never know when what you do may make some kind of contribution in a way that will influence someone else and it just continuously ripples out. So even though one person may be greater, and certainly Toni Morrison is one of the great writers, we also are working in an arena of greatness, we're all making some contribution to, which to me gives a, a lot of hope for anyone out there trying to, to make something happen. And I really appreciate always being open to whatever someone has to say. Sometimes you think what you have to say is small. I'm of the mind that may be an inaccurate assessment Perhaps it might be wiser to think that what you have to say has the potential to be large to someone. And if you say it with a sense of generosity, a sense of offering something up to 
make a little difference in the in the life of one person, not the lives of thousands or tens of thousands, just one person, then what you have to say, the thoughts that you employ throughout your day and some of the ideas you have, then become large in the mind and the thoughts and maybe in the, the, the soul of somebody right in front of you. And by not worrying about how big your range is, you are then able to make an impact on, on that one person. And so often I've heard storytellers, writers like you, Danny, who are working on this book now, I've heard them talk about how the most important person in the world is the person right in front of you, the one you are engaging with in the, in the moment. So, Danny, when you are developing your characters, it's almost as if it's, you have a real person in front of you. I've done a little bit of character development, and I've had that same experience. Sometimes actors will have it when they develop a character to present on stage. So there are many ways of engaging our lives and many ways of offering our creative gifts. And, of course, you can express yourself in many, many ways. Danny, you do it with poetry and writing your stories and with your performances on stage. Now, mostly, you're doing it on Zoom like all of the rest of us. And yet, we're still in the game. We're still in the process, still throwing ourselves out there, waiting to see what will happen next. And speaking of what might happen next, I would like to take this moment to pause for a station break and say... You are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. Our guest today is Danny Solis. And we're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and also on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter. I love your music. Keep on playing it, brother. WalterParks.com if you're interested in more of Walter's music. If you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always email me through my website. The contact button is at the top of the fold. I would love to hear your story. What's going on in your world? Happy to respond back if you send me an email. JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And one more thing, like I said earlier in the show, if you're interested in writing, and you may well be, as you've been listening to this show about poetry and performance, I have a weekly writing group every Saturday called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt. I would love it if you would consider joining it. Please send me an email, nave at jamesnave.com, and I will send you the Zoom link, and maybe you can be there with us. I would certainly be pleased about that. Now, back to the show. So, Danny, coming back to our conversation and all of this wonderful exploration around research and owls and people in the Southwest, you know, and as, as you and I have been talking for the last half hour, I've been reminded of all the hundreds of hours you and I have spent in conversations on the road. You and I were on a poetry team together, our National Poetry Slam team together. You and I both were there in the early days of the poetry scene in Asheville. And the last time you were on the show, we, we talked a bit about that. How could we not? 
that said, you were on the show three years ago. And so in some ways, this is a brand new day. And I, I would love for the people in Asheville to hear your take on on how Asheville influenced you as a writer and a poet and, and what your involvement was there. A few stories to, to let people know that back in the 90s, something was going on in Asheville. And to this day, there's still lots and lots of uh, of, of amplification from the time that you and I were there at the Green Door in Asheville and the Poetry Slam and Poetry Alive and all of that. So I want you to reminisce with me or just tell me a story so I can remember fondly what we were up to. Oh, Nave, there are so many stories that I could tell. Speaking of a rabbit hole, this is like a rabbit canyon we could explore, but there was so much going on. When I first arrived in Asheville, it was to audition for Poetry Alive. Early 1992, I was living in Boston at the time, but I immediately felt a connection with Asheville, with the place, as it were. There were so many cool things happening. Uh, Poetry Alive was there. Uh, Alan Wolf was organizing a reading. Beginning to dabble in Poetry Slam, I heard of a, a gentleman who uh, was a stuntman and known as a red molded action figure. His interpretation of Poetry Slam was to do his poem and then fling himself up into the air and body slam himself onto the floor of the stage. And I did not know who this creature was, but I said, man, that's a guy I'd like to have a beer with. And eventually would have uh, at least a few thousand beers with the mighty and beautiful Pat Storm, the inimitable Pat Storm. A couple of years later, in 1994, I would actually move to Asheville and become more of an integral part of that scene. And there were so many influences. And, and because in that particular area of the Southeast, the cities tend to be smaller. So people would travel from city to city and go back and forth. And it wasn't that big a deal to drive an hour, a couple of hours to go to see a show, music or poetry or whatever it may be, I think that added this sort of wonderful extra sort of layer of foment of art in that city and in that area. When you and I were on the team in 94, that was an amazing team. It was very diverse in terms of the voices and what we were doing and what we imagined. And I think we probably imagined a heck of a lot more than we actually did. But I mean, besides being, I think... Besides being a very creative and accomplished and formidable team, I think we were wonderfully dreamy. We all had dreams. We were, we were imagining and dreaming and all that. To me, that's the better part of the creative process. And then that team I was on, when I say people didn't, didn't think anything of traveling a little bit, Kim Holzer, the mighty, the lioness, she was living in Winston-Salem at the time, and she would drive into town to do rehearsals over the weekend. And Pat Storm was living with his girlfriend, Debbie, and they were living in Newport, Tennessee, or thereabouts in that area. Uh, they would drive in and Debbie would drop off Pat for the weekend of rehearsal and, and partying and hanging out and all of that. Luckily, I was staying in a big house at the time, so I had room for people who wanted to stay uh, and hang out. There was so much going on. And Gail Danley would come show up and visit and read and slam. And I remember... Again, the the mighty and inimitable, the wonderful Glennis Redmond 
And and Glennis, if you're hearing this, and Gail, hi, love y'all. Glennis was not slamming yet at that at that point. She was reading. She'd show up and read in the open mic and was a little timid, if you can believe that. She was timid at the very beginning. Didn't last long because she had something to say. We're all the better for her saying her piece in this world of art and poetry. But that's what it was kind of like in those days. Things were happening. People were arriving on the scene and and doing their thing, you know. And and there were so many different voices. And and Alan Wolf, I don't know if I've ever met a better facilitator. That's a dry, stupid word. Like he he would set the table, right? He he would be the host of the potluck of poetry and art. Here's this canvas, poets, go ahead. It was never about him. It was never about him. It was always about poetry. That is rare. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of great hosts and MCs and organizers all over the nation. But I do hear some people are like, well, how about some recognition as an organizer? If you're doing it for recognition, you're doing it for the wrong reason. I've run and emceed and organized a lot of readings over the years. You have to make it about poetry, right? And not about yourself. And Alan did that so wonderfully. And and Ginger West, his partner, he is her husband. I'm going to say it that way. She was such an integral part. And Lee Lancaster was such an amazing part of that time. And Ted Vaca and the, the ideas that he brought and the voice that he brought. Dan Rourke, who we were on a team with. And, you know, so many incredible voices. And when I look around North Carolina, North Carolina in the National Poetry Slam for a few years was like a powerhouse. There's just something about that area and the wonderful bubbling art that lives there. And I'm just happy to be a part of it. Well, I was happy to be a part of it too. And funny enough, this momentum that started in 1991, 92 with Alan, Ginger, Lee, and the rest of us there at the Green Door, Started, started at that spot in those early years, early 90s, it has continued on. And Asheville has ceased to be a, a force around the poetry slam, but that force moved down to Charlotte. And I think the Charlotte poetry scene and the poetry slam scene is still active and, and very much alive. And that can all be attributed to that work we did in those early years, because Alan Wolf was the first person to establish the Southern Fried Poetry Slam. That grew, and from that, all of this other stuff started to happen. So I, I would be quite inclined to give Alan credit for the leadership that has spawned so much of the poetry in the Southeast to this day. Yeah, Charlotte, what what a mighty poetry slam scene and what incredible teams they fielded. You know, I don't know, they've won like, you know, 25 national championships and been to the finals like for a thousand years, right? Something like that. Yeah, they, they have the record. You can't start the finals until Charlotte shows up, right? <laughs> they show up last, right? Because they're the boss. And I think it's important to acknowledge, Alan, and then I'm sure there are a bunch of people we ain't even mentioning, you know, who who maybe we don't even know, who, who took that work and built upon it, which is what you want, right? You don't want to be like, oh, I hosted this reading and it was the greatest reading ever and now there's there's nothing there. You know, you want it to change and morph and evolve and grow and, and just in some ways, you know, run away from you. I mean, that's kind of 
for me, one of the lessons of, of creativity and collaboration, you know, I was talking to my son about, about the drawing my friend is going to do for uh, Paloma. And, and I said, I don't want it just to be me instructing her. I want her to use her own imagination once she gets an idea and a feel for the character, because that's what collaboration is. You want the other artists, the other people involved to do stuff that you could never imagine. Otherwise, why collaborate? <laughs> if, it's, if it's just your ideas, you know, like I said, I, I so much credit goes to Alan Wolf. And then, oh, you know, I got to mention Sally Hayes because she was the person who gave me a shot with Poetry Alive. And one of the great things that Poetry Alive did besides, you know, the obvious work of bringing poetry to thousands, maybe millions at this point of kids across America, but it forced me as a poet to memorize those at least 35 poems in order to use in shows. A lot of that has still, I'm sure stayed with you. A lot of it has stayed with me, you know, and, and there are times when I go in and I'll memorize a poem just because I love the poem and, and it's different. It's like, once you memorize it, it kind of gets in your bones in a different way. Right. Yeah. It lives in a book and you have to pick up the book to remember most of the poem. If you can sit there and somebody mentions Mary Oliver and you can recite, you know, the summer day or wild geese is, is a different thing, you know? And so, so for me, there were all these influences. I, I had just, at the time I was living in Boston, seeing Patricia Smith every week <laughs> do her poetry and being in slams. There was one point in Boston where I, I went to eight open mics in a row, like eight nights in a row, because I wanted to see how many nights I could go and read a poem in front of an audience. And by the eighth night, I was exhausted. I was like, I got to take a break. But coming from that sort of bubbling cauldron of poetry and, and energy and then hitting Asheville, hitting North Carolina, the Southeast, and combining all those influences and being around so many incredible voices like you and Pat Storm and Alan Wolf, so many incredible people that were there. Well, Sally Hayes, you mentioned her. I still am in contact with Sally. She's was just as a, a light, bubbly light, and had a conversation with her not too long ago. And she still is just as bubbly as she ever was. And and it, she's excited about just being alive. Sally will just always have this enormous place in my heart. In the house of my heart, there's a room with Sally's name on it, right? That she is welcome anytime. I, I will never forget that she was the one who believed in me. I'm not sure that everybody at Poetry Alive, looking at the people who were auditioning, was completely sold on me or what I was doing. But I know that Sally, from the time we met, I feel like believed in me and believed in my ability to do the job and just believed in me as a person and gave me this wonderful chance to do the work. And hope I didn't let you down, Sally. I'm still using things you taught me and, and gave me a chance to learn. So, Well, that's interesting and exciting for me to think about the idea of how we all got together in Asheville and other places. I know that you started out in Boston with Patricia Smith and there was Ray McNeese there and many other people, Richard Cambridge and uh, Lisa Biscani and other people like that. They were all in that arena. And then you moved to Asheville and from Asheville, you went to Austin 
And then from Austin, I believe you went out to Albuquerque. Yeah. And and in that whole time frame, which spanned, I guess, God, it had to be 15 years maybe, you and I overlapped a, a quite a bit. I remember you came to Taos and did lots of work with the Taos Poetry Circus. And one of the things that I remember, and I, I give you credit for this, so I'm going to historically check with you and see if it's actually true. I remember that when we were in Poetry Alive, we created these team pieces using poetry from the school textbook. And for those of you who are listening, Poetry Alive was a, a business that Bob Falls and I founded in 1984. And the idea was to memorize poems from the school textbook and perform them as theater for the school students. When we found people like Danny who could really deliver the goods on stage, we were thrilled to bring him on and have him memorize the 35 points because we knew he could do the job with the students in the audience. When we were doing these shows, we started to break the poems up into little little scripted poems. So with the voices, we go back and forth. And then I remember in 1994, when we were doing the Poetry Slam, we were in the Nationals, we were on the Asheville Poetry Slam team, you and I, Dan Rourke, Ted Vaca, and our coach, Lee Lancaster, started to create slam team pieces in different voices. And if my memory serves me, you went to Austin and did the same thing there, and you went to Albuquerque and did the same thing there. And so by the time you were through introducing the team piece to these major cities with these major poetry slam teams, that team piece became an institution amongst the poetry slam. So I would like to think that you were the one who disseminated that idea throughout the poetry slam, starting with those days early in Poetry Alive. I don't know if that's true or not. Do you take that credit? <laughs> as long as people think it's a good thing, I take all the credit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I think the the history of the group poem in slam is a little bit fraught. And I think it's it's interesting to think about it. I did indeed carry the idea of doing group poems or multiple voice pieces everywhere I went. You know, it was part and parcel of what I did. And I and I love doing that work. And often there's contention, believe it or not, in the Poetry Slam about a variety of things. There was a time when people really scoffed at the idea of a group poem because they said the only purpose it served was to hide the weak poet on the team. And I said, that's not why I do it. I do it because I want to create a different way of expressing the poem. And there are people who said, oh, group poems are just about adding volume to the performance of a poem. And I said, it's not about amplifying the volume. It's about amplifying the soul the intrinsic qualities of the poem itself. In other words, a good group poem allows the poem, the writing itself, to become more itself in a deeper and more complex and thorough way on stage than could be done with one voice. If I can't do that in the scripting of a poem, then I will not do it. Not that I feel the need to prove my point, but when I was with the Albuquerque Poetry Ensemble, which was a wonderful but short-lived experimental group, we were scripting poems, not for competition, for two voices, trios and quartets, 
in quintets, and I think we even had a sextet where all the poets in the ensemble got on stage at once, and we did this poem that we all contributed writing to. It was so much fun and so different. There were a lot of people that loved it. There were some people that were put off by it, and, and that's okay. When people first heard Charlie Parker, there were music critics that said, that's just a bunch of noise. And they didn't have the ears to understand what he was trying to do. I'm going to spare everybody the mechanics of the craft that guide me in the construction of a group poem or the creation of a group poem. It's very deliberate. It's not just let's everybody say this line at once or it sounds really, really loud. It, it is to, to get to the the soul of the poem, the essence of the poem, and amplify that essence. And if I can't do that, then I, then I don't want to do it. I got to give some credit, though. One of the group poems that super inspired me and showed me what a group poem could be or, or excited, me about, excited me about the possibilities of the group poem was a poem called Bring Them Back by the 1993 Boston Poetry Slam team, which included Lisa King and Michael Brown and Patricia Smith, bring them back. You know, it was Lisa's poem and it was, it was amazing. And, and that, that got me really, really, you know, stoked about the idea of group poems. Poetry Alive had some contribution from the duets that it would bring to the stage performance of poems from the canon, classic poems, The Hollow Men as a duet on stage for high schoolers. What fun to sit there and watch high schoolers suddenly their eyes alight with the idea of poetry and what it could bring to them. But then the 94 team, man, we did some good group poems. You know, there were several that we did. There was something that really I found dear about the, the Dan Rourke poem, Foul Ball, if you remember that one, that we did as a four voice poem. And that was just so much fun. And it was so different with a poem about somebody dreaming about catching a foul ball at a major league baseball game, would that be a poem that would be done today in a semifinal or a final of a national poetry slam? Or would people just go for the political throat and the trauma as has become kind of the norm in a lot of ways, or just the over comedy, the setup and punchline, the slapstick. And these things have always been a part of poetry performance since way before the slam, political poetry and comedic poetry, it's part of the, the craft for ages from the Greeks. In the slam, right, it, it seems like the range of topics has gotten more narrow as the number of poets has increased, right? And I feel like at the beginning, we had a small sliver of poets that wrote about an enormous range of things and performed. And now it's like the number of poets is enormous but the range of topics has grown very small. I believe that is true. Well, Danny, I really appreciate you giving your insight on the, the group piece. And I know that this kind of work requires the efforts of thousands of people. No one person develops any of these things. That said, I do love the notion that you and I and a few others in those early days did present the idea to the group and, yeah. and we're, we're, we're advocates for the idea. So that comes back again to the 
all of us as a community advocating these ideas. One person will think of it, another person will revise it, and then they'll apply it and on it goes and becomes a very useful thing for, for many, many, many people. So it's a really wonderful thing. I wish I had more time. I could go on for another interview. Maybe we can just do this again, part two, um, another time really soon. I'd like to invite you to give a few closing words before we say goodbye. Well, you know, what I like to tell kids these days is that poetry belongs to them. And I'll tell everybody, listen, poetry belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. And it doesn't belong to fancy doctors of poetry at this or that university. I mean, it belongs to them too, but it's not the sole property of them. Just like it doesn't belong to fancy accomplished slam poets or it belongs to all of us. And it's the biggest playground in the world. And it's for free. You don't need a special pass. You don't really need any special equipment. A piece of paper and a pencil will do in your imagination. If somebody tells you, oh, that's not poetry, you know, forget that stuffy business. There are a lot of very respected kinds of poetry that when they came out, you know, the stuffed shirts at the time said, that's not poetry. Well, yes, it was. And yes, it is. And yes, it always will be. So I'm just really excited that there's some kid right now in East L.A. sitting at their desk in isolation, writing the poem that's going to blow us all away and create a new genre, a new school, as it were, of poetry that we will then have the ability, like with the group poem, to take and disseminate and change and evolve and share at the big potluck of poetry. It takes everybody, write that poem, write that poem, speak that poem. Uh, That's what it's about. Thank you, Danny Solis. I appreciate your friendship and your time, my friend. Thank you, Jim Navi. I thought about calling you James, but I, I've always called you Jim, so I'm going to stick to that if that's okay. I, you, you have a green light to call me Jim for the rest of our time on Earth, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I hope that it's long, buddy. I do too, man. I do too. And that, my friends, was the close of an ongoing conversation Danny Solis and I've been having for 20 years. I hope we can pick it back up again in another interview very soon. I would love for Danny to invite other poets on. We could do three or four poets at one time going back and forth about the days of the poetry slam. I'm glad we have a little bit of time before the top of the hour. And the reason why is because I'd like to continue discussing the idea Danny and I were tossing back and forth around the group piece or the team piece or the scripted poem. And I have something I think you will like. In 1996, Danny Solis was on the Austin Slam team. In 1995, he was on the Asheville Slam team, which won the Nationals in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And in 1994, Danny and I were together on the Asheville team, which came in fourth in the Nationals, which was held at Diana Wortham Theater in downtown Asheville. If you live in Asheville, you probably know where that theater is. So as Danny said, the team piece is about amplification. It's not about amplifying the weakest poet. It's just about giving some creative spirit to the piece. Maybe it's a collectively written piece or it's a piece that was written by 
by one poet, and then the other three or two or six poets got together and, and scripted it so that it became a, an ensemble. So what I'd like to do now is play the 1996 Austin Slam Team's piece, which is a four-voiced poetry piece about our our culture. Now, in 1996, which was, oh, coming on 25 years ago, I wonder if the questions were the same then as they are now. So if you will join me in listening to this piece that's now going to unfold before you, the 1996 Austin Slam Team performing a group piece. Your regularly scheduled program to bring you this Dunfire. Fabulous. Odor. New and improved. Active cowardice. Minty fresh. Bloodshed. A must for those who are dieting. You can't find a better set of knives. The death toll continues to rise. Now available on home video. Free with each box of massive environmental destruction. He scores! Hey, could go all the way. He draws the foul. This game is over. Rounding out the top five boobies for the week were Mighty Ducks 12 and Weekend of Bernie's 3. Three helpings just aren't enough. Try family-sized death count. Death count in Rwanda continues to rise as over 100 children a day perish from starvation and malnutrition-related diseases. Diseases and suffering from the Lord Almighty Jehovah shall rain down a great fire, fire upon those Amen, who will transgress against his precious flock. No, no Americans were killed in the disaster. disaster. Moving on to national news. Got milk? You're soaking in it. Sylvia. I'm not your uncle. I'm your father. But that means that my mother is... Your psychic friend. It tightens her abs while it rids you of affirmative, affirmative action. No, no comment. No comment. No, no, no money down. No credit. No problem. No product on the market. Works harder to ensure eight, eight hours. hours of hair-raising thrills. Watching Watch you die a thousand deaths, deaths in this terror-drenched, blood-curdling horror film. At 11. With our brand new Skycam, bringing you the latest miracle of modern technology. Now here's Sandra with sports. In football news today, a bunch of steroid-laden machoids pranced around in stupid-looking costumes, trying to prove what big men they are in a grandiose display of latent homosexual male contact-oriented grunting. Beef, it's what's for dinner. And now for more football news, let's go to Steve. At the courthouse. So we've had reporters working all day. According to police spokesmen, the internal investigation concluded the shooting was accidental. The 17-year-old black male suspect is still in serious but stable condition. But you guess we're not to worry about that unpleasantness. All they'll see is the fabulous centerpiece you put together for your small but elegant dinner party. And tonight's winning lotto numbers are Pi, No, Infinity, and 666. The real thing. The jury returned a verdict of a brand new Good and good for you. Now let's go to Dick with the weather. Stay in your home. And order pay-per-view for the poetry wrestling sudden death cage match of the century. He lost his belt to Robert Iron John Bly in the Super Slamma Blamma 3, and he's not about to forget it. Robert Bly! All those crap and that runner around the woods, face, playing grass, about your dead daddy, and especially all that bad poetry you wrote in the 60s ain't gonna save you, baby. You're going down, down. If we get close and he smells, forget it. Hey, we're hanging at the MTV Beach House ready to... Recover! And let the angel with the flaming sword cut loose the bonds of sin. Let's check that contribution total for this evening, shall we? No, no Americans, Americans were killed, killed in the disaster. disaster. Hallelujah! The new breakthrough AIDS treatment could cost each patient anywhere from forty dollars to $60,000 a year. And we will be saved! More fighting today in the West Bank. By the power of Jesus! This program is sponsored by... Our almighty Lord who looks down upon us and says... We'll get back to warm and sunny weather by Friday. Just in time for the weekend. And in tomorrow's news. In an analysis of current global trends. trends looking toward the future. A team of experts have predicted. Our civilization will soon be.
I hope that gives you some idea of how a group piece works in the Poetry Slam. I've had a fair amount of experience with group pieces over the years, and I can tell you it's a very precise proposition. The poets rehearse those moves, those verbal moves, take hours and hours of rehearsal to get them to the point where they sound like they're just popping out as if it was an improvisational impulse. I'll bet the Austin team had 200 hours of practice in that one poem over a three or four month period. And eventually you get to the point where it becomes so ingrained in your psychology and your bones and your interior that it just pops out as if it's been there from the beginning of time. And in some ways, maybe it has. So if you would like to play around with the idea of making a group piece out of a little small poem, I encourage you to do that. It's a fairly easy proposition to do. Even if you're doing it by yourself, you can have some fun with it. I know Danny mentioned the Hollow Men, the two-voice piece. The Hollow Men is a very complicated, well-established poem written by T.S. Eliot, and it's about two men who are hollow, of course, and they're thinking about society. And so putting the Hollow Men in a two-voice group piece might go something like this. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together. Headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind and dry grass, a rat's feet over broken glass in our dried cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. So as you can see, I'm playing around with the deep voice and the high voice. And you get something that emerges out of it. It's playful, that's for sure. And you can do it with, with little bitty things like Jack be nimble, Jack be quick, Jack jump over the candlestick. Of course, that was a playful little nursery rhyme that we all know. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. And on that note, I'd like to say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and also on other community radio stations like KCEIFM, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. We do appreciate it. WalterParks.com. If you would like to know more about Walter's music, and you can always reach out to me, JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can email me through my website. Thank you ever so much for tuning in, and please do tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.